Well, you know as well as I do that um, if you're at all around uh, the news yesterday, you saw that there was a horrendous shooting in El Paso. And so somebody told Shale was telling me there was another shooting this morning in Dayton, Ohio. Didn't even, I've been oblivious to news all morning long. Um, You know, the country has, you see it shifting away from a lot of Christ-centered values and even... um, the thoughts of when you mention prayer, it's that, that, that even is kind of mocked now. But because a country, because a culture, because a society surrenders something, does not mean a church ever needs to surrender anything. And so churches are based and foundationally principled on prayer. And so we'd be remiss if we didn't just stop and pray. Um, while we can't control some of the things outside of what happens in the church, we certainly can control what the church responds. And so, can we just go ahead and do that now? Let's pray for those folks. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of um, being able to approach you in prayer, times of um, just times of hurt and pain. <clears throat> and Lord, because it's such a geographic distance, it's hard to personally relate. Father, we can empathize as best we can, but Lord, it is you that we can directly ask for strength and peace to be given to people whose lives are permanently altered. Father, there's lives that, um, that woke up yesterday morning completely different than today. And Lord, I can't imagine what they're, um, what they're going through, but Lord, you do know. And Lord, we collectively ask for you to give resounding peace amazing sense of peace and strength to people who need it more than ever. Lord, um, for the first responders, we pray for them. For watching uh, and knowing what the authorities and what fire rescue have seen. And Lord, they're, they're human. And Lord, those things are hard to erase. We ask, Lord, that you, you strengthen them as well. Lord, we, uh, we hold up this time in our country as a time not to, not to accentuate more division, but to bring about, Lord, the power of who you are and how you can restore and how you can heal. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Thank you. So, as we're going into today... There is, um, I, I saw the looks in the first service of walking through the amount of verses we're going to walk through. And um, as you get into 2 Samuel, folks, there's drama. It's drama, 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 drama. My grandma used to watch soap operas. And I, would, I, was, I saw them when, she, when I was five. She was watching The Guiding Light or something like that. Was that and then when I was 15, there's The Guiding Light. And then when I was 25, there's, and it kept going on. I'm like, their, their lives never explicably changed. It's just the drama. We're walking into a massive amount of drama that is incredibly detailed. <clears throat> and so to hold on to the beginning of this message, to grasp some names. This is critical. This is paramount. This is foundational. If you miss this, <laughs> this will be a long sermon. It's going to be a long sermon anyway. So, But <laughs> watch what, just bear with me, okay? So I'm going to give you the cast of characters and roll, this, roll down with you some names, okay? King Saul is the one who's been pursuing David for over a decade. 
11, 12 years he's been pursuing. King Saul, we, we saw last week, was killed. He was killed in battle with his sons, except for one. One son was not in battle. That's really unusual, as a matter of fact. You wouldn't leave him behind like a president would leave a vice president behind as a just-in-case. No, you left. You took everyone with you, and they left this guy behind because he's weak. His name is Ishbosheth. Say that a bunch of times in a right good Irish name, Ishbosheth. So this name, Ishbosheth, is the surviving son of King Saul. Everybody with me? He has a chief lieutenant and lead officer named Abner. Everyone, I'm going to ask you to say this name. You know it. You've read it a hundred times, but there may be a person here who goes, I did not know what's going on. Ishbosheth's chief lieutenant's name is Abner. This guy is of the house of Saul. Whenever you see the house of Saul, that's what it is. You now have David. David has just been told that the man who's been chasing him, the king of Israel, is dead. He's gone. He has a chief lieutenant. His name is Joab. Who's his lieutenant? Joab. You now have Joab and Abner. Those are your two main characters today. And when I talk about drama, like I said, there's a lot of drama that's going to be heading into this scene. Two chapters we're covering. Looking back, too late now. I could have probably hunkered down on one, so bear with me. Let's go. Chapter 2, 2 Samuel. After this, after this what? After this means Saul's dead. David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go? And he said, Go to Hebron. Now, let's stop right here. I'm going to read through a lot of verses a little bit, but this is critical to to ask ourselves, would we do what David just did? David has just been told Saul is dead. There's no more king. And then David now is living, by the way, he's living in Philistine territory, remember? Those of you who've been here, he's been in Ziklag. That's a Philistine city. That's That's enemy territory. He's living in a city. David, you would think, would just say, all right, you 600 mighty men who've been incredibly good at fighting, let's go. Let's take over a town and a village and let's get out of here. What does he do? He stops and he says, God, what would I do? What should I do? I want you to remember this because we're going to come, we're going to circle back around. We're going to come back around. To that. He is saying, God, what should I do? And he choirs. Remember, it's been over a decade. He's had every right to go back in. I mean, this is one of those places where you just recognize some people pray more than other people. Do you hear that term prayer warrior? Like, oh, you go to, you know, I don't know what designates a prayer warrior, you know? I don't. But I tell you one thing, when I'm in a spot, I go to those people. <laughs> I'm like, whatever, however you war in prayer, I, I need, like, do this. Pray. Verse 2. So David went up there, and his two wives also. Verse 3. David brought up his men who were with him, everyone in his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And then the men of Judah came. And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. Let me just stop on four real quick, because this may confuse you. Israel has the majority of the tribes of Israel. Judah the tribe of Judah would not join Israel. They remained separate. 
They were an economically flourishing people. They didn't need them. On a modern day illustration would be this. You ever look at Iraq, in Iraq, and you just look in the northeast corner of the Kurds, the Kurdish people, economically flourishing area. They're in Iraq, but they don't join anything to do with Iraq. And so in this particular case, the land of Judah is separate from Israel. So if you're wondering, wait a minute. I thought David was going to be king of Israel. Israel is still under the authority of the house of Saul under the weak son Ishbosheth. David is, in, is now being told by the elders of Judah, we want you to be our, our king. So they anoint him. And then they tell him something. Then they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. Jabesh Gilead is not a town in Judah. It's a town in Israel. What is... Um, what does it mean? They're the guys who buried Saul. What's the big deal? Again, we talked about this last week. When Saul was killed, King Saul was killed, and the Philistines went up to the king, and they cut off his head, and they took his head as a trophy, there was a town, Jabesh Gilead in Israel, who heard what happened. And a few days later, they made a 25-mile round trip to go retrieve the headless bodies and to bring these bodies back. And so what they did, they got there. Remember, we're talking heat talking days. We're talking decay and smell. They get there and the greatest insult could be heaped on a Jew is to not bury him. So they get there, they take the bodies and they burn the bodies to bring, to get rid of the flesh, the smell. Then they, they cool it off. They take the bones, they take the bones to a tree back at Jabesh Gilead and bury it. So David heard of that. David, remember, he had an honor for the king and he said, who were those men who, who took care of the bones and buried them? They said, well, they're in Jabesh Gilead in Israel. Verse 5, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to him, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you've done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So, David sends this kind gesture. David is already acting like a king. He's already acting like, like a king. You know, some people have this inept, inept, I'm sorry, this innate leadership ability about them. Um, I remember when I was a chaplain for a um, baseball team here in town. We had minor leagues and we had a lot of the New York Yankees. And you could always tell the guys that were going to go someplace by, the how, by how they spoke. You never saw someone who propelled themselves into the majors saying, I did this, I did this. It's like, well, we, you know, we're going to work on this. We're going to work on this. We work together collectively as a team. Pete, you've probably seen that before. Just It's natural leadership instincts. You've even told me, like when I played baseball, there were some guys just walked in. You knew that's the leader. This is a king saying, I, I, I acknowledge what you've done. and It was honorable. I'm going to give you greetings and thank you acting like a king. Verses um, 8 through 11, we're just going to skip those. I'm just going to paraphrase those for you because, again, we have a lot of verses. I don't want to say skip them. But this, basically, Abner is setting up Ishbosheth to be the king. Abner is setting him up. Ishbosheth does not want to be king more than likely. Abner, though, has a good job. Why does Abner want to stay in power? Money. Privilege, power, and women. He has everything he needs being the second in command of Israel. So he sits there and says, get in here, get in this office. I'll tell you what to do. Ishbosheth, this weak leader, comes in. He takes over. And meanwhile, 
Abner's just corrupt as ever. Who is Abner? And when you, okay, let's grab this. Ishbosheth is about 40 years old. Abner, his chief lieutenant, is not a young man. Some of you may remember him, as a matter of fact. You remember um, when David went after, when David, before he slayed Goliath, he walked up, he's like, why, why, who's, why is nobody taking him on? Why is nobody taking him on? And he says, I can do it. Abner is the one who took a young David to King Saul. So Abner's been around. Abner is, we're, I'm guessing, around 50 years old. Abner is strong. He's not weak. He's not a 50-year-old admin guy who's never seen battle. He is a man who's personally led battle in so many places. He is a man who's wise. He's sharp. And he's conniving. Joab, the chief lieutenant and right hand of King David, is of equal wisdom. They have known each other since they were children. They have probably played together as kids. And now they are about to fight against each other. Joab and Abner have been in this particular area their entire lives. This area is corrupt. That's why Abner's there. I talked to a missionary who was here last week, two weeks ago. They're going to Argentina, sending a shipping container of materials down. I said, how much is it? I said, oh, it's like $5,000 to get down there. About 3000 for actual cost, about 2000 for bribes. I'm like, really? You have to bribe your way? Yeah, you have to go through um, police, port authority, local mayor, everything. He said, that's just the way it's done. And Argentina is not a third world country. So this place is going through... But Israel in this particular area is no different than a lot of areas are now. All right, verse 12. <clears throat> Abner, the son of Nair. Okay, by the way, you're going to see a lot of the sons of. Don't, don't feel like you've got to grab these names. It's just this is how they introduced people back then. Abner, the son of, of Ner, actually, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out to Manahiahim to Gibeon. And Joab, remember, Joab is. David's right hand man. Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out to meet him at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Now you're asking, what's going on here? A pool, by the way, is a spring with a whole lot of water. So they would do two things. You would see pools for healing properties, uh, Bethsaida, things like that. People, they, There's so much water coming out that they, they put a big pool around. It's maybe a big urban area. People would bring their cisterns, their buckets, and take the water away. This particular pool was a gathering place. And so Joab shows up. Abner shows up. There is no connection here that Ishbosheth or David knew what was going on. We have, but they both show up and they look at each other and they do what they have done for a thousand years before. Let's have a contest. We put a dozen of our greatest men against a dozen of your strongest men and let's see what happens. And to the victor goes the spoils. If you win, Abner, I'll join you. You win, I join you. We can't imagine Joab doing this, but he nonetheless, he's doing this. So they're gathered around the pool, these 12 men on each side. And um, for, verse 14, And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose, passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, 12 for the servants of David. And here it is, ready? Verse 16. Each caught his opponent by the head, thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they all fell down together. 
Therefore, the place was called something or other, which is a Gibeon. <laughs> and the battle was fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now, here it is. Drama, 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 drama. These two meet together. What are you doing? Trust in the king. Trust in King David. He knows what's going on. Abner's a, a ruse. He's a fake. He's a fraud. Joab, what are you doing there? Joab goes in for it. All right, you want 12-year men? They're, they're drunk. I'm telling you, if these two guys are together, they're not eating. They're not, they're, I mean, yeah, you want 12 men? You bring 12 men? I bring 12 men. Let's go. These, 12, these 24 guys are equally paralleled in their fight abilities. Go in and end up in mixed hand, what they're saying hand to hand when they're head to head like that, they're hand to hand combat, they all stab each other. And they're all dying. And at this moment, all havoc breaks loose. Because you see in verse 18, there's another aspect of the story. There were three sons of Zariah there. Joab, Abishai, and Asael. These are three brothers. This is Joab and his two brothers are there. And it says here, now Asahel was as swift a foot as a wild gazelle. Folks, that's a common phrase for this guy was athletic. He was probably 20 years old, 18 to 20 years old. He's fast, he was athletic, and this guy saw an opportunity. What's he going to do? Is he going to go after and chase a bunch of men down? No. Joab's brother jumps into the fray, the young brother, and he says, I'm going to kill Abner. Cut off the head of the snake, everything dies. And so he jumps in. Uh, verse 19. Asiel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither from the right hand nor to the left following Abner. Are you getting this picture, by the way? I'm going to keep reading. Picture a 50-year-old man being chased by a 20-year-old with much more physical prowess. But the problem is, this ain't this 50-year-old guy. This is a guy who's been through battle, war, strong as an ox. He's chasing the wrong guy. Verse 20. Then Abner looked behind him and said, is that you, Asiel? And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left. Seize one of the young men and take his spoil. Basiel would not turn aside and from following him. And Abner again said to Asiel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? Then how can I lift my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asiel had fallen and died stood still. Abner's being chased, and he's yelling the entire time. He's juking and cutting left and right, and he's saying, leave me alone. Stop. Just stop. Take, take, take all the spoil from the dead guys that are here. At this moment, we know there's a, there's a sub-battle breaking out, because it'll show here in just a little bit. There's a sub-battle breaking out, and then he won't listen. He's, he's following him, and Abner simply does one of the oldest tricks that you could do. He stops and the momentum of Asiel's body propels into his spear, and the spear goes through his body and kills him. The young brother is dead. Both ends of the spear would have been sharpened. It was something that was very common. It wouldn't be in this particular case. Remember, this is before the Israel, Israelites did not have iron and steel, so they would sharpen these wooden spears to be double-edged. They would be incredibly pointy at these two edges. So, 
What happens? What, he's, what are two brothers going to do? You just saw your brother killed right there. What are two brothers going to do? Here it is. Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. As the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is, less, which is before Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. I know it sounds confusing, but hang on. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. So Abner runs up on the top of a hill. He gets up on the top of a hill, turns around. His army's there, and he sees the brothers coming up, and he stops, and he says, What are you doing? Why are you trying to... What? I didn't mean to kill your brother. I didn't want to kill your brother. Why are you doing this? Why would you pursue me in this place? I'm reasoning with you. Watch how it unfolds. 26. Abner called out to Joab. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab yells back to Abner. He says, as God lives, if you had not spoken and said a word, surely my men would have not given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. And so Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more. Nor did they fight anymore. Wow. It, it appears like Joab and Abner have come to their senses. This is going to be the end of it. There's no more, no more unnecessary drama. Unfortunately, there's a young man who's dead. Um, I'm going to just paraphrase chapter uh, verses 29 through 32. I'll tell you this. Uh, what were the losses? This is why we know there was, there was a loss. There were 320 men who died under Joab. Night, no, I'm sorry. Who died under Abner. Abner lost 320 men. Joab lost 19. So it was a very much a one-sided battle. These men were fighting to kill in every way. I'm sure that included the, the 12 on each side that died. Abner is about to do something um, in chapter 3. Pick up with me, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. David, is, is, is his kingdom is small. It's Judah. He's getting stronger and stronger. Why is he getting stronger and stronger? People are leaving Israel and joining Judah. They are. They're saying, well, look, I may be under this tribe, but I don't want to serve under this tribe. I want to go down even with Judah. It's a different tribe, but it's a different country. At least they're, they're prospering. David's armies begin to get stronger and stronger. Verses 2 through 5, the paraphrase, if you want to see David's wives that are being listed, get ready because they keep adding in number. Um, verse 6, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Look at this verse for a second. And thanks for highlighting that for me. It was, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, did you catch the irony here? See if you can catch this. I feel like a math teacher. Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Did we not just read in verse 1 of this chapter that Saul's house was getting weaker and weaker? Saul's house is getting weaker and weaker because he's getting stronger and stronger. Saul, we know, is absconding money and power, and he's putting this poor Ishbosheth in a place of total blindness. Ishbosheth has no idea what's going on. If he knew what was going on, he's too weak to do anything about it. Why would I say that? 
because about what's, what's going to happen. Verse 7, Saul, who's dead, had a concubine whose name was Ritzbah, the daughter of Aya. Ishbosheth said to Abner, watch this, what he says, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and, I'm not giving you into, and I am not giving you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? I mean, if you're thinking, am I, have I lost? You're not lost. You had a king who had concubines, women of pleasure. These women were then given to the next in line, the son. These were concubines given to Ishbosheth, King, King Saul's son. Abner's like, I'll take any woman I want. He goes up and grabs the king's concubine, sleeps with her, and then he's caught. And what does he say? Does Abner look at the king and go, I am so sorry. I can't tell you again. I, I, I didn't mean to disrespect the king. I didn't mean to disrespect the palace. He says, no. He says, who are you to tell me who I sleep with and who I don't sleep with? Who are you to even walk in here and treat me? You talk to me like I'm a dog. Now, keep in mind, you've mentioned to us dogs. We like dogs, don't we? You know, I mean, I do. I'm a dog freak. Back then, you didn't talk. That was a total insult. As a matter of fact, you see it all through Scripture. Remember David and Goliath, the scene, you come at me like a dog? Uh, remember, Jesus actually said to a Jewish woman, talking about Gentiles, you and I, do not even the dogs eat scraps? I mean, dog was not a term of endearment. And so, he says, you treat me like a dog? These ravaging animals that just eat anything and chase people and give us diseases when they bite us, you treat me like that? He's looking at the king. He's telling the king off and he says, so help me if I don't bring about your demise. All this because of a love of a woman. Verse 9. He says, God do so to me and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner with another word because he feared him. Abner looks at him and says to Ishbosheth, he says, So help me, if I don't give you and your entire kingdom to David, I'm a fool. I'm nothing. He just, at this moment, what does Ishbosheth do? You, the man has threatened him. The man has told him off. He's told him, I'm going to take whatever I want in your own home. I'm going to take people that belong to me. And what happened? What, is, what does Ishbosheth say? Nothing. He's scared to death. This is why you look at poor Ishbosheth and you're thinking, man, the poor guy. And by the way, next week you'll say it gets even worse for the poor guy. So, Abner, verse 12, this is keeping consistent with a conniver he is. Ready for this? He, Abner sent, verse 12, sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I'll make a covenant with you. But I require one thing of you. That is, you shall not see my face in first, unless you bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. Abner sends a letter. Letter would have arrived in some sheepskin kind of 
paper royal signet on it from the house of you know of Saul that would have had Abner's seal stamp on it, ring ring signet. He would have opened the letter and it said, I am prepared to give all of Israel to you. Probably went into detail. Ishbosheth is a is a spineless leader. He's nothing. I can give you everything. David looks at this paper. He tells a scribe, write him back. Tell him, I'll meet with him. One condition. I want to see my ex-wife. I want you to bring my ex-wife. If you don't bring Michael, I won't even look at you. You'll never see me. For some of you who are new and you walk in here and you say, who's this ex-wife? This was King Saul's daughter. Which means this is Ishbosheth's sister. He says, bring my ex-wife. When David killed Goliath, this matter of things, King Saul gave him his daughter. Said, here's my daughter. Have happy marriage. First wife. Here you go. There you go. What happens when the king Saul started chasing David? What did he do? He took his daughter back. He took his daughter back. Didn't put her in a royal house. He gave her another husband. He goes to some guy who probably owns a lot of land. And he says, here you are. Here. And so this poor woman... Michael is living in probably a medium-sized palace. She's living in this place. I go at about an average day when all of a sudden a rider rides up and says, um, you're going to be going to King David's home. What? Oh, what about the ex what about, what about her current husband? Are you thinking that at the same time I am? She has a husband. Folks, this is pitiful. You, cannot, you can't read what you're going to read and not be like... This is awful. It just is. Here we are. Um, verse 14. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. It's quite a payment. And Ishbosheth <laughs> sent her and took her from her husband. Here it is. He took her from. I'm not trying to laugh at it. Just trying, he took her from her husband, Patiel, the sons of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Barium. Then Abner said to him, go back home. And he went back home. They drag this woman, come, you're going to go back to your husband, David. He looks at her and says, you're not going anywhere. He's riding along on a mount, crying the whole time. I don't want to see you go. They get there, welcome, Michael. Abner looks at, at the... Uh, current husband says, go home. This poor guy goes home. This is how these things are reading. You can't make this up. Verse 17. <laughs> Abner conferred with the elders of Israel saying, now this is more conniving. Okay, Remember, Abner's still serving in Israel. Still serving under Ishbosheth. He confers with other, when you see elder, other officers. He confers with the other officers saying, you know for some time past, you've been asking or seeing, seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Basically what he's telling these guys is, you know you've wanted David to be your king. And now we got a chance. I have his ex-wife here. I sent her husband home. I'm taking her to see David and I'm going to negotiate. Are you with me or not? And these guys are like, sure. 
And so verse 20, And when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were there with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all the Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over that with all your heart's desires. So Abner sent, or I'm sorry, David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Okay, this is where the commercial break comes in, right? This is when, this is when uh, David has met with Abner. Everything's going well. It says, when you go out in peace, that means you are going out with total protection. That means you, when you leave that door, are under my jurisdiction. If anything were to happen to you, it's on my head. So David says, Abner, thank you. I receive your offer. Bring Israel to me. Do whatever you've got to do. Connive, manipulate, do whatever. But there's a problem here. There's a cast, there's, there's somebody that's not mentioned this banquet of, who has a vital role and a little past with this Abner. We mentioned his name earlier. Anybody remember? Joab. Where's Joab? I mean, Shane and Hunter, two brothers back there, I would think if one of, if one of the brothers was killed, the other one probably wouldn't forget who did it. One's going, yeah, the one's going, no, no. So, you know, but here's what happens. Joab is at war. And he rides in in verse 22. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he'd sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told to Joab, Abner came to the king, and he's let him go. And he's gone in peace. Remember, there he's even saying, he's gone in peace, which means he's gone with full authority. And there's nothing you can do. Then Joab went to the king, probably ran to him, and he said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it you've sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner came to deceive you and to know you're going in and you're coming out and to know all that you're doing. He's looking at him and said, you had him right here, 20 of his officers, you could have killed him, you could have arrested him, you could have detained him, and you send him out now with full authority. What have you done? You can't trust him. He's here to spy on you. He's here to report who you are and where you're doing and the strength of your numbers. Joab has known Abner his whole life. Verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Sarah, but David did not know about it. So keep in mind, Joab sends out messages that are completely secret and confidential, and David has no idea what's going on. The message gets there and says, come back. Abner's like, I'm under, I'm under a peace treaty. I've been summoned back to David. Probably has something big for me. Verse 27. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Osiel, his brother. Afterward, David heard of it. He said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord of the blood of Abner. 
May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the, watch this, watch his wish of insult. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword who, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai and his brother killed Abner because he had put their brother Asiel to death. Now, verse 31 starts to wind down this chapter. David's reaction, he, go, he orders everybody into absolute mourning. Look at verse 31. Then David said to Joab and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier, which is the funeral dirge. And they buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. David ordered mass grieving and mourning. The only time you put on sackcloth and you rip your clothes is if you lose somebody in close family unit of you or, or you lose a national figure. He is saying, Abner represented me. Abner was mine. Abner was who I was. Which, if you think about it, is a beautiful picture of how a church should bring someone in. We've said all the time, any church can be a great place to fail. But a church should, or any church should be a great place to succeed. I mean, every church should be a great place to fail. I really butchered that. Meaning, Anybody can come in here and give a great testimony. Look at what God's done to me. Look at what God's doing. Look at how God's moving. And we celebrate that and we want that. We love that. But it's when you fail that we need to be the church. We need to be the church that comes around and supports and loves and doesn't abandon and comes together. And this is what, what David is saying is Abner is jacked up, manipulating, conniving as he was He's one of ours. When I said you were one of ours and you go in peace, you're one of ours. That's who you are. David got it. Joab didn't. And meanwhile, he's following this funeral dirge and he's weeping. He's burying him at Hebron. Hebron, by the way, for Bible scholars and geeks who want to go back, all the major pillars are buried there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their wives, they're all buried. This is Arlington of Israel. And he buries Abner right there. Which, by the way, if you really want to go back and study, the very fact that God said, go to Hebron, is fulfilling a promise he made to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years ago. That's a phenomenal story. That dog can hunt and a whole other sermon series. And if you want questions about it, we'll go to lunch and I'll tell you all about that. But it's, it's a phenomenal thought. There's so much in here. But he buries Abner there. He looks at Joab, he says, what have you done? And he, he goes back to the, and I end with this in, in uh, the chapter, it says verse 39. And I was gentle today, no anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, remember that's the three brothers, right? Are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. I love verse 39. Go the beginning. Read that first line again. And I was gentle today, though anointed king. You know what he's saying? I didn't kill you, even though I could have. I was gentle in everything I did. I could have just roused in anger and done anything I could. 
that's the beauty of what you see in David. If people ever say, well, David, look at all the mess-ups. Look at the intricacies of David. Look at how many times he failed. Sure, everybody loves to pick on those. But we're always blowing past the things that David does, does well. In this case, he exercised more power and more authority by looking weak in the eyes of people by saying, I'm going to do the right thing. I was gentle today, even though I was king. That's, that's right power. But he did something else that brings us to a point of application. Whenever we read these chapters, and they're historical, they're being told in what we call a narrative, meaning this is how you're supposed to read them. They were written this way. These were first read to Jews in exile, just as we're reading. People hanging on had never heard these stories before, and they're being done to give you the history of Israel. But as we as a New Testament church, here's what we do. We always read through this, and we come back to how can we apply this in our life. So, I could say, don't we all have dysfunctional, jacked up families, and we all have something in common with David, right? You know, or Joab. No, I think it goes beyond that. I think it goes back to the original verse at the beginning when it said, David sought and inquired of the Lord. What shall I do? And for me... That is the most powerful picture of how to pray that you could ever ask for. Let me give you an example. What are the great ways that we pray? Reactionary prayers. You get pulled over by a cop, telegraph prayer. God, get me out of this. You know, help me do this. You start looking at um, finances, God, open up that bank account. I mean, somebody's hurt, somebody's in the hospital, God, help those people. We have PhDs in reactionary prayer, there's no doubt. How many times have we looked at someone and said, God, just do this, do this, do this. But think back. Think back to how many times in our lives, and I'll just be the one to say how many times in my life, I look back and think, I didn't prepare my life with prayer. And there's a big difference. David, when he's saying, God, what do I do? He could have easily marched on Hebron with his 600 men. He earned it. He deserved it. 11, 12, 13 years on the run. Take the city. The people are going to welcome you anyway. They have no king. He's dead. Go get it. God, what do I do? The reason he's saying that is because he knows deep down the battles he's going to fight are the ones he'll never see coming. And it's just like you and I. How many times has the greatest drama and turmoil hit in your life and you were blindsided and you never saw it coming? You never saw it coming. No one ever wakes up on a Monday in a healthy fashion expecting to get a bad medical report. Nobody ever expects to hear something bad that family's done or has had happen to them. No one has ever predicted the battles they are going to face. That is what we call a blind side. It wouldn't be a blind side if you saw it coming. And you have to remember, if you're brought up as an American Christian and you've been brought up in suburbs and you're thinking, you start talking spiritual realm and all that stuff and it sounds like a bunch of gibberish, it's not. We live in a place that battles spiritual elements. They do. I'm telling you. You just, believe it or not, If you believe in Christ and if you believe that he died for us and you believe that he fought against sin, you'd better believe in a spiritual realm that exists. You just have to. And that spiritual realm knows you. As a matter of fact, it's described 
um, very clearly says that the devil walks around in, like a, a roaring lion, sneaking to devour, and sne- is, is conniving and knows your soft spots, knows your weaknesses, and knows exactly where he's going to get you. And all the ways you think he'll get you. Even when you examine your own weaknesses and go, this is what he's going to do. He's better than that. He's smarter than that. And he'll come at you, and he'll deceive you, and he will disappoint you, and he will crush you. How he will typically do it is to come find those that are closest to you and wreck them to wreck you. That's the, that, the, the biggest pain is not a thousand arrows coming at you from uh, people you don't know or they're enemies of you. It's the one that comes from you who's right in your own home, who loves you and you love him or you love her. And that pain is what hurts the most. And the devil knows that. And it will do everything it can to discourage and defeat you. And so what happens? We go into what we call reactionary prayer, reactionary mode. Lord, fix this. Fix this person. Do this. But think back. And there is something you can do, but think back to the time and you look back and, and this is not a this is not penalty for not being proactive in your prayer, but think back to the times you were not praying to God equip me and lead me into what I'm about to walk into. Now, if you're a skeptic, and I like skeptics, I'm a skeptic, I would sit there and think, wait a minute, you think God's going to play a cold trick like that? You think God would, would look back and say, I mean, a God who knows everything, omniscient, omnipresent, who knows everything, God is going to penalize you for something he knew, something he knows what's going to happen, and he's going to look at you and say, well, gee whiz, Sheila, you didn't pray like you should have earlier, so I'm, I'm going to show you. No, it does not operate that way. Prayer works two ways. It works to communicate to him and for him to communicate to us. He's not going to do it in a way that we're, you can hear someone speak, like, Ted, you're going to speak to me. But he does it in a way that's uniquely different. Meaning, here it is. Proactive prayer does this. God, I need you for the things I don't know that are going to come to me. I need you for those moments where I'm going to be blindsided and where I'm going to be wrecked by those who I love and love me. I need you to move into my life in a way where you are, what you are doing is you are building your spiritual immunity. Meaning when everything hits and everything's falling down and everything's crumbling and everything's against you, you are prepared. You have no mental earthly idea of what to expect, but at the same time, you are conditioned to know when these things happen, God has given you a strength and a discernment unlike any other time. And so I want that as a church for us, which is why before we start seeing blocks go up and and, and the roof and all that kind of stuff start happening, and next week you'll get a little update on those things, we as a church need to walk together in prayer. And this isn't one of those things where I'm like, hey, I know 10% of you pray really a lot. And you're like, no, I mean, like, I'm talking every one of us come together. This is your church. I hope we have given you as best we can a church that you feel like is your church. You walk in and you say, and if you're not even a member here, it doesn't matter. You're a member of his church. We come together and we pray. We're like, God, show us now what to do when the blind spots hit us. And here's what happens in prayer. And I close it. Landing gear down on a plane. You ready? In case you're wondering how much longer am I going. Here it is. It prioritizes everything correctly. If the king of your life is just your life, you will implode. 
you will explode under circumstances. You will fail. You will fall. You will be miserable. You will weep. You will mourn. If the king is not your life but is him, it prioritizes any news that comes in because it's put in perspective, total perspective, of your relationship with God. And so for someone whose home is their entire life, their entire place of society, their entire sense of security, or even their image, when that is attacked and destroyed, they have nothing. But when everything you have and everything you direct is say, God, I don't know what to do. I just need to talk to you. I want to, I want to feel your presence. I want to feel your love. I want you to... Uh, you have that interaction... Losing your home, losing your reputation, losing those things that would have much at once broken you and put you on the ground. It's something that happens that you have strength to not only survive through, but to understand and get clarity where you might not. I will never be able to answer why certain things happen to some people. Funerals that I've been to that don't make sense. There's no way. The flower of youth cutting way too early. No way. And shame on me for ever, 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 anyone ever walking up to you and saying, this is why it happened. No one knows why. The only why that will ever be answered is through communion and talking with Him. With the Father. Building that spiritual immunity. Building that relationship to when these things hit. King Jake, King Luke, King Brant, Queen Amy, all of us simply give up our throne. And the prioritization says this, God, no matter what's going on, you're in control. That is the difference. And Saul who says, I want what's mine, and King David to say this, I was gentle today, and I didn't have to be. Because he had communion and prioritization with God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you.